Chapter 2 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 Voyage to Madeira. We appointed 4 p.m. on the 20th of August, 1880, a Friday too, for our departure. That morning, the Falcon, ready from truck to keel, lay at anchor off West Quay. The Blue Peter was at the masthead indicating to all friends that we were off at last. West Quay took a holiday, and a crowd of small boats rowed around us all the morning, filled with many who wished to inspect the craft. At 2 p.m., we stretched the awning on deck, and a lunch was spread out for a few friends, a boisterous lunch in which many toasts were drunk, and our success warmly wished. At 3.30 p.m., the bell was rung, the mainsail hoisted, and as the last shore boats left our side, up came the anchor, and with cheers from the spectators, we dropped down the river on the top of a good ebb. Almost all the yachts we passed knew us, and their crews cheered us lustily. We still had a large company on board who insisted on seeing us safe to the chops of the channel. Two friends from town, Captain Forbes, who had rubbed up our navigation at Southampton, and a pilot. At midnight, we were outside the needles and commenced to feel the swell of the channel. The weather was very favorable for the voyage. A light northeast wind was blowing, which continued until we dropped our anchor in Falmouth Harbor on the following midnight, that is, 32 hours after leaving Southampton. We were now enabled to judge more or less of what stuff our crew were made during our trial trip. The philosophic calm which distinguished our nod commenced to declare itself. He reclined in his cabin smoking and thinking during the greater part of this voyage, turning out only at mealtimes and evincing no inclination to undertake his due share of the work. On the afternoon after leaving Southampton, while we were passing the Eddystone Lighthouse, he did crawl slowly out on deck, to our great surprise, with a blanket over his arm. He rubbed his sleepy eyes, looked around with a lazy smile at the smooth sea and cloudless sky, stretched his blanket on the deck, lay down on it, lit a cigarette, and with a half-yawn, half-sigh of extreme content, said, I could go around the world like this, and resigned himself once more to his beloved Dolce Farniente. Andrews, though more active and willing than Arnaud, was equally incapable of mastering the very elements of fore-and-aft seamanship and caused Jardine, the officer of his watch, as much trouble as Arnaud did me. There was a good deal of hard language to be heard occasionally on board the Falcon, sounding above wind and waves, when such an incident as the following, for instance, would occur. Time, 2 a.m., dark and squally night, night steering, Arnaud smoking and pondering, supposed to be looking out. Night, observing squall coming up, locator, Arnaud, just run forward and scandalize the mainsail, will you? Begin by tricing up the tack. Arnaud creeps deliberately forward and disappears in the darkness. Five minutes elapse. Night, impatiently. Now then, have you not finished that yet? Arnaud, in a minute, in a minute. Another five minutes elapse. We are now in the middle of the squall, which does not prove so violent as was anticipated. Night, very impatient. You are a nice, useful fellow on board a yacht. Ten minutes, and you have not triced up that tack. If that had been a serious squall, we might have gone to the devil while you were fiddling about there. 
Arnaud, very indignant, I do not care. I will leave the beastly thing alone. I will not be sworn at. In the daytime I can find the strings. In the night I cannot, and I shall no longer try. Follows a prolonged and very noisy discussion, whereon the face of Jurdine appears above the hatch. How the blank do you think we can get a wink of sleep down here when you are kicking up such an infernal row? Etc., etc., blank, etc. This little episode occurred months after leaving England, so the reader will perceive that the education of my friend progressed but slowly. So, too, it was when Jardine and Andrews were on deck. I was awakened one night by a tremendous row, a banging about of ropes, and, far louder than all, the stentorian exclamations of the wrathful Jardine. On coming on deck, I found that, on being ordered to let fly the jib sheet that the ship might go about, Andrews had got rather mixed up among the strings and had let go, in succession, the jib halyards, the bowsprit shrouds, and the peak halyards. A very nice crew this to cross the Atlantic with. And here is another little adventure of Arnaud's. On one fine day, the wind being steady, light, and right aft, and our spinnaker and topsail set, he was left alone on deck for a few minutes to steer. Suddenly I heard a great flapping of canvas, and on hurrying on deck, perceived that all our sails had been taken aback. The mainsail, topsail, and spinnaker were bellying out the wrong way, and the vessel was slowly traveling stern first. The booms, being guide, had not swung aft. I looked at the compass and perceived that Arnaud had steered the vessel right around so that she was heading away from her course. And then I looked at the culprit. He was sitting with his legs crossed Turkish fashion on the locker aft, placid, calm as a Hindu idol. He was deliberately rolling himself another cigarette, the while professing to be steering with his elbow and evidently unconscious of having done aught wrong. Well, Arnaud, I said. I think, he remarked in a weary, careless voice, looking at the burgee of the masthead, I think the wind has changed. We passed two days in the quaint old Cornish seaport. Some yachting men called on us and were somewhat surprised to behold our arrangements. Where does your crew live? they asked after going all over the vessel, for we were at the time in our shore-going togs and not to be recognized as the four seamen our friends had perceived in the morning swabbing decks. Where do your men live? There seems to be only room for yourselves on board. We pointed to the solemn small boy sitting in the forecastle, with his perpetual huge quid of tobacco in his cheek and his chum the kitten on his lap. That is our crew. But the others? There are no others. I think these gentlemen looked upon the Falcon with its amateur crew as being one of the most eccentric craft that ever wandered about the oceans. We lay in a quantity of soft tack, bottled beer, and vegetables at Falmouth so that we might enjoy the wanted luxuries of the shore for some few days of our first voyage. On the evening of the 24th of August, we bid adieu to the friends who had accompanied us down from Southampton. The anchor was weighed and catted. The last link between us and home was broken, and under all plain canvas the falcon glided out of the bay bound for Madeira. Well off at last we four, the boy and the kitten, and it was with a curious mixture of sensations that we sailed out into the dark, cloudy night on the choppy waters of the channel. 
The last we saw of old England was the lizard lights gleaming from the darkness. From these we took our departure and steered a course straight across the Bay of Biscay for Finisterre. At eight o'clock we lost sight of the light, and from that moment the routine of the shipboard commenced. Eight bells were sounded. The patent log, one of Walker's taffrail logs, was dropped overboard, and the watches set. For from now our life was no longer to be divided into days and nights, but into spells of four hours up and four hours down. Rather trying at first. There was usually a strong contrast between the expression of the faces of the watch coming down to turn in and of that about to turn out. To the latter, the jovial and noisy way with which the former would rouse it from its slumbers was disgusting in the extreme. Arnaud's face, for instance, when he was turning out at midnight, wore anything but a happy expression. He did not seem to see any fun in Jurnine's boisterous, Now then, you sleepers, now then, starboard watch, up you get. We met splendid weather all the way to Madeira. Too splendid, indeed, for we were becalmed two days in the Bay of Biscay, rolling helplessly in the long swell, the redoubtable gulf treating us kindly and sparing us all its terrors. We were also becalmed for nearly three days in the neighborhood of Madeira. Notwithstanding these five days of enforced idleness, we accomplished the voyage of 1,200 nautical miles in 14 days, for the wind was right aft all the way. It is off the south coast of Portugal that the mariner may expect to fall in with a northeast trade wind, but we carried the wind from that quarter all the way from Southampton, a great piece of luck. It would be tedious, I think, for my readers were I to give the narrative of these voyages in log form. I will therefore but briefly jot down the particular events of each, especially such as may prove of interest or of service to yachting men. The little falcon gave great satisfaction on this, her trial trip, and we got a much higher speed out of her than we anticipated. On some occasions, she has logged as much as nine and a half knots an hour, running before a heavy sea. We were enabled to carry our spinnaker and gaff topsail throughout the voyage, two days excepted. On approaching Finisterre, we got into a confused and nasty sea in which the vessel rolled heavily, and these lively Penzance luggers do know how to roll. Durdine and myself had now to take all the steering through our watches, as Arnaud and Andrews could as yet only be trusted at the helm in fine weather. On the evening of the 29th of August, we sighted the lofty cliffs of the Spanish coast, and at dusk made out the light on Cape Finisterre. This day we spoke the Maria, a Spanish bark bound for Coruna. In the night, we lost a hand overboard. We could not recover him, as it was very dark, and there was a heavy sea running. The sad event occurred in the middle watch. I was steering, with Arnaud standing by my side, when we perceived the kitten crawl out of his lodging under the dinghy which lay upturned on the deck. The poor thing had been pining ever since we sailed. The terrible liveliness of the little craft had made him very seasick, and perhaps tinned meat and preserved milk did not agree with him. Anyhow, he was a melancholy object, becoming thinner and sadder every day as his chum the boy grew fatter and more contented-looking. This particular afternoon, the kitten had sighted the smiling downs of Spain, had smelt the land, so he plucked up a bit, tried to purr, and evidently entertained hopes of soon setting foot on terra firma again. 
But now that he saw us bearing away once more, in the finister light fading away behind us, despair seized him. He climbed onto the bulwarks and, stretching out his neck, looked yearningly out towards the receding land. Now he gazed down shrinkingly at the black water, now back at the deck, evidently in doubt. And just as the light became quite invisible, with a piteous mew and one last reproachful look at the cruel falcon and her crueler crew, resolutely leapt overboard, a deliberate suicide. Death, he thought, was to be preferred to this life of misery on the ever-heaving seas. On the 1st of September, being in about latitude 38 degrees north and longitude 14 degrees 12 minutes west, off the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea, we encountered our strongest breeze, a moderate gale from the northeast, before which we ran nearly 100 miles in 12 hours. On the 29th of August, we ran 142 miles. On the 30th of August, 118. On the 31st of August, 108. On the 1st of September, 180. On the 2nd of September, 150 dead before the wind, so that we had no reason to complain. We were, on the 2nd of September, only 168 miles from the Madeira Islands, but we did not drop our anchor in Funchal Roads until the 7th of September, for we now encountered calm and light baffling winds, progressing but slowly under a leaden sky across a long, smooth-swelling leaden sea. Tepid, uncomfortable weather it was, with the thermometer standing at 85 degrees in the shade. Early in the morning of the 6th of September, we sighted a rugged, rocky coast right ahead of us, which we soon made out to be the island of Porto Santo, the northernmost of the Madeiras. It appeared to be a wild spot, a small isle not six miles long with an iron-bound coast on which the Atlantic seas perpetually broke with a thunderous roar. It seemed to be barren in the extreme, merely a tumbled mass of rugged black mountains, in some places running sheer into the foaming sea and others fringed at the foot by beautiful beaches of golden sands. Strange did these lofty mountainous islands of the mid-ocean appear to us after the low verdant shores of old England. There was but a light wind blowing and it was not till midnight that we sailed between the group of barren rocky islands known as the Desertas, only distinguishable this dark night by the roar of the surf on them, and the east coast of Madeira. Then we bore away to the westward until we were abreast of the lights of Funchal, some four miles from the anchorage, and hauling the foresheets to windward, hove to till morning. The next day was cloudless, sultry, and with scarcely a breath of wind to fill our sails. But with the assistance of the sweeps, we brought the falcon by about midday to the roadstead of Funchal, and came to an anchor within hailing distance of the shore under the walls of the Lou Rock Fort. And now, indeed, we could perceive that we had come to a summer land. On the shore in front of us was the white Portuguese city, and behind it the island rose in swelling domes of luxuriant vegetation and dark forests, up to the barren rocky mountaintop six thousand feet above the sea. It was pretty hot, too. The Lesta was blowing, that hot wind from the African Sahara, which brought the thermometer up to 90 degrees in the shade. As soon as the customs and health boat had come off, and we were free to hold intercourse with the natives, a bum boat came off to us from the shore, the regular old traditional bum boat of Marriott's novels, 
laden with oranges, bananas, figs, mangoes, fresh butter, fish, soft tack, and other unwanted luxuries. But the bumboat woman, the sweet little musical buttercup, was wanting. In her place was a shifty-eyed, grave, dark man of unprepossessing countenance, one Marco, who undertook to supply us with water, stores, look after our washing, and so on. He could speak some English and was laden with certificates from all the English yachts that had visited Madeira for years. There are no ship chandlers here, so one is left to the mercy of these irregular land sharks. Marco is perhaps no worse than the rest. Jardine said, He may prove to be an honest man, for he did not wince when swallowing the very strong tot of whiskey I gave him. I have some doubts myself as to the general efficacy of this ordeal. The town of Funchal we found to be very dull and uninteresting, but like all who visit the island in perpetual summer, we were astonished at the beauty of the surrounding country. From the steep, paved, narrow streets of the suburbs, over whose every wall hung large bunches of purple grapes, to the tops of the swelling hills, the land overflowed with an exuberant and lovely vegetation. Myrtles, large trees of grand geraniums in full flower, roses, vines, oleanders, bananas, covered the hillsides, while every lane was shaded with festoons of vines. Mr. Falconer, our host of the excellent English hotel known as Miles Hotel, a beautifully situated place built in the center of a lovely tropical garden, made arrangements for us to visit the world-renowned view of the Grand Corral. He procured good horses for us. The Grand Corral deserves its reputation, and we had a most pleasant ride to the Sublime Gorge by a road which winds along the sides of mountains, sometimes precipitous and barren, but generally covered with verdure and flowers and noble forests of chestnut. The broad blue Atlantic was always a feature in the scene, so high were we above it that we could see the light clouds skimming over it below us like phantom ships. On our return to the city, we went to the circus, for Dull Funchal just now boasted this excitement, a Yankee circus that was traveling among the Canary Islands and up and down the west coast of Africa. We were already provided with tickets for the performance, for the shrewd American had already pounced down on us as likely people to be looking out for entertainment. We had made the acquaintance of some of this queer crowd of light-hearted wanderers in the following wise. We were sitting in a cafe, indulging in glasses of strong red wine in which cream ices had been stirred up, a pleasant combination in vogue here. At another table was sitting a man who eyed us silently for some time, mentally taking our measure. He was a shortish man with close-shaved head and keen Yankee features, with an eye ever twinkling with good-natured fun and a mobile, nervous mouth. After, no doubt, having pretty well gauged the character of the Falcons and having detected some Freemasonry of Bohemianism in the appearance of these great navigators, he came boldly up to us and, with Yankee twang, burst at once in media res. Wall, strangers, and so you've come all the way from England in that little craft in the harbor, eh? Proud to make your acquaintance. I'm the finance man of Feely's Circus, that's who I am. Now I guess you'll want a dash of moral recreation tonight after all those days of hauling and heaving, eh? Here you are, producing an envelope, just four places left, 
Four box tickets for tonight's grand representation of Feely's American Service. Right. Yes, I'll take a little awapura with whiskey. E viva, senores. We visited the circus and enjoyed it, too, for the little company was clever. We all lost our hearts to a pretty and merry-eyed little Yankee girl who gracefully did la oitacola on a fine bay horse. I think our friend, the finance man, saw this, for he considerately spared us any further wounding of these two susceptible hearts. He came off in a boat to call on us the next morning and brought with him his boss, Mr. Feely, and the Neapolitan clown, but none of the fair artistes. They are liable to seasickness, he diplomatically explained. This trio stayed to lunch, and we turned them out our best curry and minced collops, stimulating their appetites first with a world-renowned falcon fog cutter, a terrible beverage of the cocktail species invented by Jourdain in the early days of the cruise, but much improved by further research and experiment as we progressed. It contains manifold ingredients of which whiskey and Angostura bitters form the base. What comes on the top of these depends much on the products of the clime the falcon happens to be in. Thus, a detailed recipe is impossible. If you ask a denizen of British Guinea what a swizzle is, his reply will be a demerara tipple. He will not condescend to analyze further for you that delicate pink foaming draught. So be it with a falcon fog cutter. It is a falcon tipple. For two years, this company had owned a small schooner yacht in which they traveled with all their paraphernalia from island to island of the West Indies and up to Spanish Maine. Then they were wrecked. Many a curious yarn these three Bohemians spun us of their roaming life on the warm western seas among the pleasure-loving people of the Spanish Maine. Mr. Feely was the gravest of the three, as became his responsible position. Circus proprietors always are more or less solemn. It must indeed be hard and delicate work to keep in order the curious little world of a traveling circus, with its artistic jealousies and squabbles. End of chapter 2